Hello and welcome back to Oral Valley Catholic. I'm Father John Arnold, pastor at St. Mark's. Today's scriptures explore the nature of God's power. Christ is the judge of empires, nations, and persons. Christ is the true king, the good shepherd, as the first reading from Ezekiel prophesies. The reason Matthew tells the story about the separation of the sheep and the goats is it goes back to this story in Ezekiel about when God will visit his people. Uh, that same good shepherd who, in Matthew's gospel, separates the sheep from the goats depending on how they uh, treat the hungry, the poor, the naked, the imprisoned, the thirsty. That, that same good shepherd leads his sheep, as Psalm 23 says, and gives us rest. St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians describes the kingdom of God dwelling within his people by virtue of baptism. For in baptism we enter into Christ's death, and Christ died to place everything, including death, under his feet, so that God may be all in all. This we call the incarnation, when God takes on human flesh. The incarnation is incomplete right now. The incarnation is complete when all human beings reflect the face of Christ. In Scripture, all roads lead to Genesis, where God made us in his own image and likeness, that likeness of God in Christ, who reigns in us as king. How does he reign? Well, that's the Gospel of Matthew. He reigns when we feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, clothe the naked, visit the imprisoned, when we live daily the spiritual and corporal works of mercy. When we show mercy, that's when we're most perfectly the image of God. And then Jesus says, he'll say to us, come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Oh, if it only has been this smooth over the last 2,000 years. In today's Oral Valley Catholic, I want to talk about the relationship of church and state. The relationship between the kingdom of God and all earthly nations, empires, and bureaucracies, which pretty much run the world, is captured in the Gospels when Christ is tempted in the desert by Satan. It's in all the synoptic Gospels. But remember this part. Then the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their magnificence. And he said to him, All these I shall give to you if you will prostrate yourself and worship me. At this, Jesus said to him, Get away, Satan. It is written, The Lord your God shall you worship, and him alone shall you serve. Matthew chapter 4. Well, let me translate that for you. If I get to do a modern English translation of the gospel, here's how Jesus would respond to Satan. Quote, If nominated, I will not run. If elected, I will not serve. End quote. How do you enter the kingdom of God? Because it's not by seizing political power. Through right worship, Jesus says, and the service of God through the spiritual and corporal works of mercy. So why is the relationship of the church and the world, the state especially, so fraught with tension? Christ said he came to save the church, the people of God, not any nation, empire, or bureaucracy. Rome fell, so will the United States of America. There is, in the end, only one kingdom, one reigning power. Nonetheless, 
The church has had to deal with the world as it is. And in a very broad brush approach, I'd like to talk about how the church is related to the world in a variety of ways. And this is very broad brush. But this, I think, is fair. In the early church, which goes from basically Jesus' resurrection to the year 325, the Council of Nicaea, the Roman Empire intermittently persecuted the Christian minority. If there was any interaction between the state and the church, it was generally in the context of defending Christians who refused to acknowledge any God but God. The martyr was the central figure of Christian identity in these days. Those who willingly accepted death at the hands of the Romans and praised and worshipped the one and only God as death claimed them. All the names, Ignatius of Antioch, Justin Martyr, most of the early church priests and bishops, Perpetua, Felicity, Agnes, Cecilia, and all those and more recounted in Eucharistic prayer number one. They were all executed by the Roman state for impiety. What's the impiety? They rejected the gods of Rome. They wouldn't sprinkle incense in front of the statue of the emperor. But you know, that changed in the fourth century when Constantine ended the official persecution of the church and sought to interact in a more positive way with Christians because there were just so many Christians and the empire was always involved in civil war. Constantine was looking for a place to bring the empire together. And religion has always served as a basis for bringing people together because in every nation, there has to be something that connects you. The emperors gave the church, St. John Ladder in Rome, Constantine himself did that. That's the Pope's cathedral in Rome and a variety of other basilicas to use. St. Peter's was given to the church by the emperors. There was, however, a quid pro quo in the works. The emperors did retain authority to refuse a bishop that was unsuitable. This has been part of the power struggle between church and state since the time of Constantine. Late Roman control of religion became the basis for the uneasy relationship between nations and kingdoms that grew up in Europe following the end of the Roman Empire in the West. It fell in the late 5th century when the last emperor was basically a kid, was kicked aside by Odysseus the Barbarian. What a great name, Odysseus the Barbarian. Anyway, Clovis, the Frankish king, another barbarian. The Greeks said they were barbarians because their Germanic languages always sounded like bar, 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 according to my religion teacher, my history teacher in the seminary. But anyway, Clovis, through the influence of his Christian wife, Clotilda, was baptized on Christmas Day in 508 AD. Other barbarian leaders followed over the centuries. This is the period when the church was complicit enforced conversions of pagans, and later, the Inquisitions as kings expanded their territory or solidified their kingdoms. Religion, Catholicism in particular, was weaponized as a way of forming nation-states, and the church wasn't complicit in that. John Paul, Benedict Francis have all admitted this. The idea of the altar and the throne in harmony was at the foundation of nation-building in the early medieval period of Christendom. Generally, the church was used for state purposes, um, but they really didn't think about church and state so much. It was this one power that God had brought into the world for the good of human beings. And everybody was trying to do what they thought was good. It is tough to go back and judge people. 
because we aren't in their situation. The chaos and the endured, even the uh, Crusades, was very concerned about this expansionist, very aggressive um, Islamic empire. Uh, when Islam wasn't fighting amongst themselves, they were fighting Christians. Really, just uh, history is a history of conflict. You know, the Reformation did not change this medieval dynamic. It just changed the religion and the leader. So, for instance, Henry VIII replaced the Pope. Episcopalianism replaced Catholicism. So the relationship between Christianity writ large in the state did not change in the Reformation. It just changed who was in control of the church. So this unholy alliance between Christianity, state, and the Inquisition of both the Protestant and Catholic varieties, because the Protestants had their own versions of the Inquisition. We live in an English-speaking country, so we get all the English propaganda. But the truth is, they persecuted Catholics ruthlessly. Um, but all of this fighting to, for religious conformity was used as fuel for the eventual revolutions of the enlightened secular period and read the uh, 18th century in the 19th century. Religious trials and public burnings, you have to admit, are naturally at odds with Christian belief in free will and conscience. That apparent contradiction, which did not go unnoticed, was used by enemies of the church and came back to haunt Christians in the age of the French Revolution, when a king, a queen, bishops and priests were guillotined in Paris. Anybody who didn't go along with the, with the revolution was guillotined. And they're in the revolution, turned on its own, and began to guillotine its own. Really a dark chapter in what is the, called the Enlightenment. How they can call it the Enlightenment's beyond me. But mostly, this is all propaganda. So, the age of revolution brought down monarchical rule ultimately in Europe and created the secular state pretty much as we understand it. The United States of America is a product of this period. Ironically, these same secularizing forces that were, did not want to be associated with the church freed Rome and the Pope from state control over the selection of bishops. Up until that time, since the time of Constantine, lay people, kings and emperors really, had say about who was elected bishop as they sucked up all the power and saw it as just one more fiefdom to give out. But it's Vatican I, and we all think of it's because of the uh, infallibility of the Pope, but there was more to it. In Vatican I, which convened in 1869, the laity in the forms of kings and emperors had always at least a no vote, if not more, in the appointment of bishops since the time of Constantine, like I said. But that ended in 1869. In our current manner of Episcopal appointment, where the laity is not even consulted, really stems from Vatican I. It about, makes it about 150 years old. How we uh, pick bishops is kind of a modern novelty. <clears throat> a modern novelty. St. Augustine, for instance, was made Bishop of Hippo by election of the people of that Roman city. He wasn't appointed by the Pope after conferring with other bishops. Other bishops had to consecrate him, so the church had to accept that election. So it wasn't just the people. It was The church was involved. Other clerics were involved. But at the heart of it was uh, the people uh, really driving the, um, 
the elections are bishop. Well, the current means of appointing bishops is secret and involves a canvassing of opinion from clerics alone, at least in the United States. This is part of the problem of the McCarrick Report, right? When the only people you talk to are those complicit uh, with uh, McCarrick, and then voices outside of that, like Cardinal O'Connor, get ignored because you think all it is is um, about a hit job by the Cardinal of New York on the Archbishop of Newark. That's the way it got played out in that report. And it's the role that these sick church divisions play in our own failings and our own problems. Disunity is not just about schism. It's the way it cripples us as a community. Well, it's not always this way in other nations. For instance, the Vatican negotiated a concordat with communist China over the last several years, where if Rome has followed its past practice, because the agreement's been kept secret, the communist government of Beijing can negate Catholic bishop appointments. So they protect themselves from uh, priests they know that will be critical of them. So since Vatican I, the church has negotiated agreements with lots of hostile nations in order to take the pressure off the local church. And that's what the point is. It's not the ideal relationship, but the church does not live in an ideal world. This was the same accommodationist approach the Vatican followed when negotiating the Vatican Concordat with Hitler's Third Reich in 1933, which gets played out as this sinister thing. But all uh, that Pope is trying to do is to protect the church from persecution by the Nazis. But of course, with the communists and probably with the Nazis, uh, an agreement which is lock solid and agreed to is when negotiations really start. Um, it's a sick world, just accept it. But before we Americans think, but it's different here, please recall, due to strong anti-Catholic prejudice in these United States, our home, the Vatican and Washington did not even establish diplomatic relations until January 10, 1984. That's right, 1984. I was 28 years old. Before that, the Protestants were against having any connection to the Vatican. Well, this I said is broad brush. We didn't get into the weeds too much. But what do you see in the broad contours of this? You see ongoing persecution. More Christians are probably killed for the faith now than were in those first three centuries. You see the church trying to work out a way of existing with the state and avoid getting used because the church gets used, but also how it is that the church has some control over the appointment of bishops. You know, in the East, it's been a different deal, but under the communists, you actually had KGB agents appointed as uh, metropolitans in the Russian Orthodox Church. Who knows how uh, they're appointed now? I, I just don't know. I don't want to cast aspersions on it. But the, this idea of the church and state being separate, this is not um, the way the world really operates. So I'd like to take a moment. I'd like to talk about our long church tradition, because I know Catholics are kind of disappointed sometimes about how the church interacts with the state. But I'd like to at least let you know where we're really at with all of this.
Today is the feast of Christ the King. Uh, Christ is the judge of nations, empires, bureaucracies, and people. Uh, and what is his kingdom? The kingdom is the incarnation. The kingdom is complete when the incarnation is complete. The incarnation is not just an historical event that happened when the angel appeared to Mary and she conceived of the power of the Holy Spirit. The incarnation continues uh, in the baptism of every infant, the confirmation of our teens, when you receive the Eucharist, when Christ is alive in you and you respond to that grace, you become another Christ. This is the incarnation. This is what Christ's kingdom looks like. When Christ is all in all, and so we worship, we listen to the scriptures, we stay close to the sacrament. Yet it's pretty clear God is not all in all yet. We have Catholics that you wonder how they, how they see their faith. So for instance, some Catholics express disapproval that the U.S. bishops congratulated Joe Biden on his election. I understand that. I uh, remember when it wasn't like that when John Kennedy was elected, but we didn't know much about John Kennedy like we know about Joe Biden. The country wasn't divided in the same way. But it probably wasn't the same people who disapproved of the U.S. Catholic bishops when they congratulated Donald Trump on his election four years ago. Because the bishops in this country will cooperate with whoever the people of the United States select as their leaders. That's as good as it's ever going to get between the city of God and the city of man. So just decide for yourself. Is the world better off if we Catholics return to the catacombs uh, and allow ourselves to be persecuted? And the only time we poke up is to yell our disapproval of gladiatorial games, abortion, which was rampant in the Roman empires? Or do we continue to try and influence uh, secular, sometimes hostile governments around the world? There are two different approaches. Uh, the church thinks that the best thing to do is to try to keep in the game and keep talking about Christ's people to these governments. Well, the bishops always opt for engagement. Just count on it. Engagement, however, is not the same as approval. Here is St. Augustine's take on the city of God and the city of man. St. Augustine, a bishop himself, had a dim view of government. In his day, it was the Roman Empire of the late classical antiquity variety. He thought that the city of God in this world, that it was in this world, but it wasn't of this world. His idea of the city of God is that it had always been there even before Jesus and in the people of Israel, and it had been present in some way and would be till the end of time, but that this world would never be the city of God. So the city of man, according to St. Augustine, continues to dominate on this world. At best, Augustine would say, Christians need to work to keep the world from getting as awful as it can be. Just look at the book of Revelation. That's the Christian view of what the world is. Let's remember what the scripture tells us the game plan is. Hey, here's a case in point. The 20th century. Just go through it and look all the ways that Christ is not king. Well, St. Augustine actually wrote his great work called Civitate Dei, that is, the city of God. 
And in it, he wrote about Alexander the Great, who was uh, the Greek uh, warrior leader in the fourth century before Jesus. Uh, he, he does it because he's quoting a Roman named Cicero, who was assassinated by Caesar Augustus, Octavian, I guess he was known at the time, uh, a couple of decades before Jesus was born. But Cicero tells this story and St. Augustine uh, repeats it. This is what Cicero and Augustine think of government. It's really about justice. So listen to St. Augustine's words. Remove justice then, and what are the kingdoms but large gangs of robbers? And what are gangs of robbers but small kingdoms? The gang, too, is a group of men ruled by a leader's command. It's bound together by a pact of association, and its loot is divided according to an agreed law. If by constantly adding desperate men, this scourge grows to such an extent that it acquires territory, establishes a home base, occupies cities, and subjugates people. It more openly assumes the name of kingdom, a name now publicly conferred on it, due not to any reduction in greed, but rather to the addition of impunity. For it was a witty and true response that a certain captured pirate made to the famous Alexander the Great. When Alexander the Great, the king, captured this pirate and asked the man what he meant by infesting the sea, the pirate defiantly replied, Just what do you mean when you infest the whole world? But because I do it with one tiny ship, I'm called a robber. And because you do it with a great fleet, you're called an emperor. That's actually in the city of God. That could actually be a decent political philosophy. Uh, but I'm not sure the, the Republicans, Democrats, or independents want to simply see themselves as gangs of robbers. Well, anyhow, Augustine, apropos of today's readings, concluded the city of God talking about what heaven is, the real city of God. And he said this, For in sinning, we lost our hold on both godliness and happiness. But when we lost happiness, we obviously did not lose the will to happiness. In heaven, the saint said, in the true city of God, there we shall be still and see. See in love, love and praise. Behold, what will be in the end without end? Or what else is our end but to reach the kingdom that has no end. And so I tell you this, Christian, remember, the city of God exists in this world, in you, but it's not of this world. So adjust your expectations accordingly. This has been another episode of Oral Valley Catholic, and Advent begins next week. So we'll see you back then. Until then, Please stay safe.